Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for Prop G comes from Anthropic. Incorporating AI into your business can be a delicate balance between speed and intelligence. That's why you might want to consider the Claude 3 family models from Anthropic for your enterprise AI. Haiku is their light and fast model. Opus is their most powerful model capable of high-order thinking, and Sonnet is the best combination of both speed and intelligence. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. Episode 285. Route 285 is a U.S. highway known as the Death Highway. In 1985, Microsoft released the first version of its Windows operating system, Windows 1.0, and The Breakfast Club, great teen movie, hit theaters, becoming an instant classic. True story, I have the body of a teenager. It's amazing what you can find on eBay in developing markets. Go, go, go! Welcome to the 285th episode of the Prop G Pod. In today's episode, we speak with Dan Ariely, the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University, and author of a number of influential books, including his latest, Misbelief, What Makes Rational People Believe Irrational Things. What is that, like 98% of America right now? We discuss with Dan exactly that, why people believe seemingly impossible things, as well as how we can avoid certain facts when we don't like the solution. Uh, Professor Ariely is sort of a role model of mine. I just love how he takes behavioral psychology and makes it compelling. And I think he's a great storyteller. And I've actually seen him a few times on the speaking circuit. He's a literally like a bit of an aspirational role model. Okay, what's happening? I'm headed to New York. That's right. The dog's coming into the city. Little, little walking around Soho, little zero bond, little too much alcohol, little lot of alcohol. I'm having dinner. Where am I having dinner? I'm having dinner. I think I'm having dinner at Babo. I'm going to have dinner at Cafe Select, one of my favorite places. I'll do lunch or breakfast or brunch at either um, uh, Jack's Wife Frida, which I love. And I'll get pastries from the Baltazar, the Boulangerie at Baltazar, where I find a $14 brownie. Uh, I absolutely love New York. Thrilled to get back there. And then I'm going to Tulum. Then I'm going to Tulum to be a total uh, privileged douchebag uh, on mind-altering drugs, minus the mind-altering drugs. I don't really do a lot of that stuff. I love it down there. Everyone says it's turned and it's gotten, whenever TikTok says something that they're over something and that it's so passe, that's when I start going. Like something's on its way out, that's when I move in. And if you go on TikTok, they'll just convince you that, oh, Tulum was amazing 10 years ago, but now it's now it's not amazing. People say the same thing about New York. I think New York's never been better post-COVID. I think it's just uh, incredible. Okay, on to some serious news. Elon Musk tweeted that his company, Neuralink, successfully implanted its first chip into a human brain. 
According to Elon, initial results show promising neuron spike detection. What do you think it was going to say? Yeah, we're killing people left and right. It's not working. Anyways, what is Neuralink? An Elon-founded neurotechnology company that is building a brain-computer interface. The goal is to let those with traumatic injuries, such as loss of limbs, control a phone or computer just by thinking. Uh, so I think this is incredible, and you got to give it as much shit posting as we do of Elon. He definitely is an incredible innovator and in doing really aggressive, amazing things. Uh, and this feels, I think there's enormous opportunity here, but I'd also like to point out that he seems to never be the one that goes into space or actually uh, implants shit in his own brain. Anyways, the FDA approved Neuralink's plans for human trials last May. Nita Farahani, a professor of law and philosophy at Duke University and previous property guest, says the global market for neurotech is growing at a compound annual rate of 12% and is expected to reach $21 billion by 2026. I'd like to have my friend Josh Wolf on. He's um, a venture capitalist who invests in what I affectionately call crazy shit, like this kind of stuff. And I, whenever he talks to me about his companies, I think that's too bleeding edge. But his returns to his LPs would indicate that he's um, that's not true. He's done really well. Anyways, moving on, there's some big news in the podcast space. Smartless, a show hosted by Will Arnett, Jason Bateman, and Sean Hayes, is ditching Amazon for SiriusXM. Bloomberg reported that the three-year deal between Sirius and Smartless is worth more than $100 million, $33 million bucks a year. Amazon reportedly paid between $60 and $80 million for the show back in 2021. We haven't seen the big bucks associated with podcasts in quite some time. In 2020 and 2021, uh, these were the hot years for pod acquisition, specifically for Spotify and Amazon that bid the market up. Back in 2021, Spotify reportedly only brought in $215 million in revenue from podcasts, despite investing more than a billion dollars in them. And the Financial Times noted that that was only 2% of Spotify's total revenue. And then they absolutely exited the business. The thing about podcasting, people ask a lot of questions about podcasting, is that I don't think there is a medium that has more income inequality. And that is, I would bet that the top 170 do a hundred and do ninety eight percent of the revenue and one hundred and fifty percent of the profits. What do I mean by that? If you're not in the top one thousand podcasts, it is not self sustaining. The ad market here is very much crowded in kind of the top probably five hundred podcasts. So unless you're in the point oh 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 one percent, you're unemployed or it's a marketing vehicle, not a revenue producing vehicle. This is a very difficult market. Why? The good news is the barriers of entry are just non-existent. The bad news is the barriers of entry are non-existent. It kind of got went through some different stages where initially it was sort of a few celebrities who were interesting doing stuff. That didn't pan out. I think the guy that's really busted this whole thing open is Joe Rogan, both long form. He's very talented at it. He kind of defines the medium. And I'm, I've often said that we should all send 10 cents or some sort of royalty every time we do a podcast uh, to Joe Rogan because he kind of exploded the medium. What is also interesting about it is that um, it peaked in 2019. Everybody wanted a podcast. And what I found is even some very good podcasters have decided to get out because it's a decent amount of work and you effectively have um, a medium that's not really growing as fast as the podcasts were. So in you know 20, uh, call it 2015, there were maybe 100,000 podcasts. Uh, by by 2020, there were a million new podcasts. Think about that. In 2020, obviously, we were at home a lot. A million new podcasts started. And last year, there were about 220,000 new podcasts. My guess is we're going to see a net decline in the number of podcasts over the next several 
years. So there's some good things about it. It's growing. Uh, the podcast medium is growing, I think, at low double digits. And it's getting pretty good CPMs. At Pivot and Prop G, we get about 40 or $45 CPMs, which is actually really good for anything that I guess technically is digital. It's even good for television or radio. Why is that? Because our audience reaches uh, hard to reach um, demographics. Specifically on Prop G, we reach upper income young men, which uh, are very difficult to reach and also very attractive to advertisers because they buy stupid things like BMWs and Nikes and coffees. And they are difficult to reach because they're not watching ad-supported television other than sports. And then on Pivot, we reach kind of the great white rhino of listeners, and that is uh, very, very powerful tech executives who software companies are looking to sell software into. Uh, I believe the market's coming back. Um, why? The key attribute, the key value out of podcasts they can be, the top 200 are relatively small businesses for media, but they're very profitable. Once you hit, you have a big production team at half a million bucks a year or maybe a million bucks a year. And then once you hit that, in terms of advertising, you know, 80, 90% of it is gross margin pulse to the bottom line. But even more than that, the reason why it gets higher CPMs is because it's intimate. What do I mean by that? When someone approaches me, I track this pretty carefully. I get about one and a half, when I go out, when I decide to actually leave my apartment, which is one of the reasons I'm looking forward to going to New York and Tulum. For some reason, I actually leave the hut or the apartment, so to speak, in reverse order. Anyways, I don't get out much. And um, when I do go out, I get recognized. I'm now up to about 1.3 times a day. Some days I get three people, some days I get zero. And people come up to me, super nice, super friendly. It's one of the nicest things in my life. Uh, I can tell how they know me based on how they approach me and the tone and the complexion which they present themselves. If they come up and they're just like, hey man, hey Prop G, high five, it's a video. It's a video, it's something on TikTok or a clip of something or even TV. If it's, they wanna like sit down and they kind of put their hand over their heart and they wanna talk about how meaningful something I've done is to them, they read something I wrote, specifically something about family or relationships. The written word still moves to the heart faster and in a more impactful way than I think any medium. If they come up to me and just start speaking to me, they don't even introduce themselves, they just come up and they're like, Scott, and I say yes, and I turn around, and it's almost as if I can, I sit there and think, how do I know this person? Because clearly they know me. No, I don't. It's the podcast. People believe that they know you. And one, you're in their ears for an hour. And specifically, the operative term there is in. It's very intimate because you're inside of their ear. You're on their person. And also, they're usually doing something quite intimate or they're doing an activity that traditionally was reserved for people or things that meant a lot to them. They're fixing breakfast for their family. They're listening to it in the car with their son. They're with their dogs on a walk. They're working out. Whatever it might be, it's usually a space or a time and space where they don't typically have strangers speaking to them. So when you're in their life that way, they feel as if they know you. And as a result, um, host readovers get twice the CPMs of inserted ads. Why? Because if they hear your voice continuing to read an ad, they're sort of interested in the ad. The skip-throughs or whatever you call it, the, the, the percentage of people who actually listen to the ads, I think is above 70%. And for some podcasts, it's 80 or 90, which makes no sense to me because people can skip the ads pretty easily. But people don't seem to mind when it's the host reading 
reading the ads. Anyway, so small but profitable business, still growing, unlike most of media outside of TikTok and the kind of the digital guys. A huge income inequality, high CPMs because it's very, very uh, intimate. Okay, one last story before we get to our conversation with Professor Ariely. Layoff season and the year of efficiency continues uh, for the tech sector. In just the first few weeks of the year, nearly 100 tech companies, including Meta, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, have collectively laid off around 25,000 employees. As a reminder, 2023 was brutal for tech companies. Around 1,000 of them cut nearly 260,000 jobs last year. In 2022, we predicted that 2023 would be the year of the Patagonia Vest recession, but in their last quarters or towards the back half of the year, the big guys would have their most profitable quarters because they would, while their revenue growth wouldn't accelerate, it wouldn't decline, and they would be able to reduce costs. And we saw a tripling in the net income of Meta. The bottom line is the market loves layoffs when they're not economically, they're not driven by a recession. And these are quote unquote discretionary layoffs. And here's why layoffs are cost reductions. I don't even say laugh, but cost reductions can be so powerful. If you have 20% operating margins, I mean, meaning for every $100, you end up with $20 in gross profits, right? And that's pretty healthy. That's not tech-like margins of 40, you know, some of these companies have 40%, but it's not manufacturing operating margins of high single or low double digits. So let's call it 20, 20% operating margins. You have two choices to grow shareholder value. How do you grow shareholder value? You grow the company, you more strategically um, grow top line revenue or become more strategically advantage to companies, whatever it might be, or you just increase earnings. One increases the multiple, one increases the earnings. So how do you increase earnings, right? One of two ways. You either grow the top line right, by five bucks, or if you have 20% operating margins, you reduce costs by $1. So when faced with growing, when Meta, Alphabet, and Amazon said, all right, we need to increase, we need to increase our profits by $10 billion, what would be easier? Growing the top line revenue by 50 billion or cutting costs by 10 billion? So they said, you know what, it'd be much easier, given that we've been stuffing so many calories on the esophagus of this company for the last 20 years, to cut $10 billion in expenses as opposed to growing the top line $50 billion. That's probably the wrong example. Cut costs by $2 billion versus trying to grow the top line by $10 billion. And I think this is kind of rolling through the economy. And then they've been given this tool called AI, and they think, well, I could actually probably use this to replace some jobs. In addition, it's been such boom times, and we've been hovering up all human capital Quite frankly, we could probably lose 10 or 15% of our employees and not notice, or the end consumer, the front end consumer wouldn't notice that they're gone. This is all to say that as an entrepreneur and as a manager, your job is to grow shareholder value. Your job is to grow enterprise value. And there's a bunch of ways to do that. I'll give you an example of Prop G, or we have Prop G Media. We have several lines of revenues. We have speaking, we have podcasts, we have books. Uh, what else do we have? Oh, revenue from our newsletter. And up until about two years ago, everything was basically a marketing vehicle that was sort of break even to drive this incredibly high revenue, high margin business called my speaking business. Over the last two years, uh, our speaking revenues have gone from 50% of our revenue to about a quarter of our revenue. And while that is slow top line growth, it has made the enterprise worth more because it's a media company, not an enterprise supporting one person speaking business. My speaking business will never be acquired, or at least I don't think it will be. I don't see how a company would come in and say, we want to buy this company to get your speaking revenues. But they might want to buy a media company that has 
uh, repeatable assets um, that seems to have consistent revenue and our podcast does generate within a certain confidence interval, a certain amount of revenue each month and it's growing, call it 20, 25% a year. If you were to describe, if you were to try and zero in on what drove an incredible year in the markets in 2023, you'd say, well, it was really just seven stocks or AI inspired. But even more than that, more than that, specifically talking about the operational efficiencies, if you will, or what was the financial I don't know, construct or dynamics that drove so much shareholder value was the following. It was one, the great taste of reduced expenses without the calories of reduced revenues. These companies continue to increase their revenue growth or continue to have revenue growth as they were decreasing their costs. If you're ever in a situation where you turn around, this happened at a bunch of companies. Quite frankly, sometimes it wasn't their idea. Salesforce had an activist investor Elliot, come in and say, we own a couple billion dollars of your stock now. We'd like you to take a hard look at your costs. Mark Benioff, who is very savvy, what is the rookie move among, quote unquote, experienced CEOs when an activist shows up? They circle the wagons and they immediately put up the middle finger and say, how dare you question me, master of the universe? And they fight them. Well, no, Mark Benioff is a grown up, smart, very shareholder driven and said, sure, guys, what are your ideas? Listen to them and said, yeah, there's probably some fat to cut here. Cut some fat, didn't lose any revenue growth and boom, champagne and cocaine, bottom line explodes. So, so as a young entrepreneur, you're going to be totally focused on growth. That makes a lot of sense. But adults also focus on costs. And I know firsthand that venture capitalists love entrepreneurs who throw nickels around as if they're manhole covers. Keep in mind, you push up revenues or you push down costs. Both are fantastic ways to grow shareholder value. We'll be right back for our conversation with Dan Ariely. Welcome back. Here's our conversation with Dan Ariely, a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University and the author of a number of books, including his latest, Misbelief, What Makes Rational People Believe Irrational Things. Professor Ariely, where does this podcast find you? I'm currently uh, at Duke in my, in my office in the Center for Advanced Hindsight, uh, but, but my mind is uh, scattered all over the place. I'm thinking about uh, Israel, I'm thinking about Gaza, I'm thinking about uh, London, uh, I'm thinking about what's happening in American universities, about Iran, Syria, what's happening in South America. Um, so the world is uh, very troubling uh, these days. I, I think if somebody wrote a book about this particular era that we're living in, we wouldn't believe them. Yeah, I, I sometimes assign it to the fact as I get older, I get more anxious. I was sort of sleepwalking through life from sort of zero to 30. I think from 30 to 50, I had the right amount of anxiety. I call it productive anxiety. And now I'm anxious about everything, but it feels... These times feel especially uh, anxious. So it feels... Actually, let me, let me say one, one more thing about this. You know, I, I view my world, my, my job as um, trying to promote small improvements. I think big improvements are tough. Small improvements are possible. I think that within the realm of social science, there's lots of opportunities for small improvements. We can get people to sleep slightly better. We can get people to save a bit more, to fight a little bit less, all of those things. But then these big things happen. And they, they take us back. And, you know, it's, it's very hard to say, okay, we make this small improvement and this big step back that our, how do we find the energy to, to continue uh, driving 
these small improvements. We were speaking off mic about how the Holocaust deniers are now merging with the October 7th deniers, people who are saying are questioning whether these events ever really happened. And when I, and that in itself is disturbing, but what I find more disturbing is when I hear these people and I see them interviewed, other than the words that come out of their mouth, their background, their education, it just doesn't fit. You think these look like normal Americans that would you would expect to be rational, and they're not. And that's where your work kind of comes in, um, what it means to be irrational. So let's start there. Give us an overview of what it means to be irrational. Yeah, so there's, there's lots of ways to be. There's one way to be rational, and there are many ways to be irrational. Uh, but, but what you said is, is, is very true about this notion of beliefs and, and you know, my, my latest book is called Misbelief exactly uh, because of that. And we see these people and we say to ourselves, uh, five years ago, uh, we thought that we had the same beliefs. And now we look at the same people and we say, we don't understand how are, how are they and us looking at the world in, in the same way and, and coming to such different conclusions. And it turns out that there's a psychological machinery uh, that gets people to a state of misbelief. And as a, as a metaphor, you, think, you can think about the cookie. And the cookie is a, is a weaponized food that is designed to get us to want one and then eat another one and another one and another one. And somebody designed the cookie, not intentionally to create the obesity epidemic, but somebody designed the cookie with an optimal combination of sugar, fat, and salt to, to, get, this, to get this behavior. And we have this machinery that gets us to believe very strange things, things that you would say, I, I don't understand how, how this happened, but this, this machinery is, is much more complex than the cooking because it attacks almost all of our psychology. If you look at, if you look at misbelief, it's basically kind of almost like an introduction to psychology textbook where it's about emotion and stress, cognition, personality, social, and all of these elements have a role in the descent of people from having standard beliefs to having some very strange um, beliefs. And the basic ingredient that starts this whole path is stress. And, and let, let's take us for a second away from, from politics and, and, and the world around us. Think about uh, two tribes of fishermen. One tribe of fishermen fishes in the deep sea. One of them fishes in the lake. Those in the deep sea have a much more unpredictable environment. Those that fish in the lake, much more predictable. Which one of them develops more superstitions? The ones in the deep sea. Why? Because a superstition gives people a sense of control. I'll clap my hands, I'll pray to a God, I'll do this and this thing, and it will give me some sense of control. And it turns out that when we're stressed, and I don't mean the stress of saying, oh my goodness, I'm so busy, I'm not sure how I'll manage. I mean the kind of stress that says, I don't understand the world. I don't understand why the Houthis in Yemen are all of a sudden attacking Americans. I don't understand what's happening in South America. I don't understand uh, why Russia is attacking the Ukraine. Like, I don't understand what ChatGPT is going to do for, for my future work. When, when people are living in an environment and say, I just don't understand the world, they want a story. 
So superstition is one story, but we want a story. But we don't end there. It's not just a story. We want a story with the villain, right? Because now it's not our fault, it's somebody else's fault. And we want a complex story. And why do we want a complex story? Because the complex story basically gets to say, I thought I don't understand how things are. Now I feel that I understand more than other people. I understand that there's a cabal, there's all kinds of things uh, like that. So people want a story with the villain, and the story has to be um, slightly complex. And that's not the end of this, uh, that's not the end of the the, the final of misbelief. It's not the end of the descent toward misbelief. This is just a starting condition of what it starts. And if you think about COVID, I don't know what your feeling is, but my feeling is that we haven't finished even dealing with the emotional aftermath of COVID. Um, I think about kids who are now in college that spend the last two years of high school or the first two years in, in, in COVID. I think about people who are uh, restricted, worried, uh, concerned, um, uh, lost money, lost faith in other people helping them. Like, think about all of this. It takes a long time to, to recuperate. And we haven't recuperated from COVID, and now we get these other avalanches that are just making it very tough for us, very tough psychologically, very tough to cope. I want to double-click on that. I, I, I really I find it really interesting in the notion that we become more vulnerable to conspiracy theory or misinformation or behaving irrationally when we're under stress. And that just makes a ton of sense to me. And as a boomer, I find that some of the views, some of this conspiracy theory, I mean, it it's kind of cuts across all age groups. But the place I find it most surprising is with young people because they're the most educated generation in history. And yet on some of the biggest issues, I find that they're the most prone to misinformation or conspiracy theory. So taking that one step further, you know, the thesis I would put forward, it's, it's not what's going on in Ukraine or even in the Middle East that stresses them. It's what you said, COVID. I think that's remarkably obvious, and I wish I'd thought of that. But also that the younger generation with Instagram, social media, bulldozer parenting, my colleague and your friend Jonathan Hyde has written eloquently on this, that you have the most stressed generation in arguably American history. I mean, maybe young people during World War II, but you see all the indicators are young people are depressed and anxious. I think, I think you're absolutely right, but there's another component of it. And the component is, you, we've been thinking about the inputs for stress, right? And you were writing, you write about that. What's the cure against stress? What's, what's the remedy? And, and the basic remedy against this kind of stress is resilience. Now, now think about resilience. What is resilience? Usually we think about, okay, we go through life, something bad happens, like in my case, an injury, life gets really bad. And then the question is, do you bounce back? How long it takes you? And do you bounce back to where you were, a little bit below, a little bit above? That's usually what we think about resilience as coming back from a tragedy. But resilience is not just about coming back from a tragedy. It's also about the way we go about our life. And do we feel that if something bad happens, somebody will catch us? Like, you know, I think of it as like an umbrella policy for everything, but, but not with the insurance, but it's as a social contract. Um, and, and the standard uh, way to think about it is what is called secure attachment. 
right? So imagine your parents, you have a kid, they're three years old, you go with them to the park and you say, kid, go to the swing. If the kid goes to the swing and come back 45 minutes, minutes later, you have a kid with secure attachment. But if the kid goes and every two minutes they look behind your shoulder to see if you're still there, you have not been so successful. And that for me is the process of resilience. Do we think that as we go about our lives, whatever we do, do we think that if something bad will happen, somebody will catch us? And I think that that feeling is at an all-time low. Um, how, how much time do people uh, spend with their buddies? How much do people spend meaningful time uh, with their buddies? Uh, how, many, how many friends do we have that we think will travel 3,000 miles and spend $20,000 to bail us out of jail. Not that this is the, the only test of friendship, but the reality is that we're getting into a situation that we have less and less resilience in society. And, and another interesting input is that as economic inequality increases, resilience goes down. Why? Because even at the level of a neighborhood, people with high income inequality in the neighborhood are less likely to ask their neighbors for help. Right? So we are, we are less together. Uh, of course, there's the Democrat-Republican separation, there's all kinds of other things, but we're less together. We feel that there's less things to rely on. So all of this stress is not just increasing, but we have less resilience. So we have less things to, to defend ourselves. Like our psychological immune system against stress is weaker. So all of this is, is creating uh, lots of tension. And then if you think about them, the, so we said, you know, uh, misbelief is about stress, cognition, emotion, and social. If we jump for a second to the social, think about a young person who, you know, hasn't heard much about Israel or Hamas or the Palestinians, uh, but they heard the, the phrase from the river to the sea. And they don't necessarily know what river it is or which sea it is, but, but that, that statement is basically a community statement for them. We have these people, we're marching, we, we are a group, we're together. All of a sudden, it, it fulfills a need. It fulfills a need. They, they belong to something. They have, they have a group. And you know, you, you, you said earlier that uh, it's not the people that you would suspect they're intelligent and caring and uh, creative and so on. That's right. One, one of the things I learned through this journey of misbelief is that we shouldn't discount those people and we shouldn't discount their opinions. And, and what I mean by that, it's not that they're correct, but the, those beliefs answer real needs that people have, right? Yes, we can say, okay, they're descending to the path of misbelief, they're ending up believing in something else, but what function do these beliefs have? Why is it that, that people have a need to believe that the, the world is flat or the World Health Organization is doing something or their Jeep 5? Whatever it is, nobody wakes up in the morning and say, I want to have some misbelief today. People have some deep psychological needs and they, they find these misbeliefs as a, as a remedy for those needs. Now, it's not the ideal remedy, but it is a remedy. I, I love that. I, I love the notion that 
you become more susceptible to misinformation and conspiracy theory when you're stressed. And at the resilience, it, just as you were talking about, you know, it's a lack of resilience. I was thinking the thing that popped into my mind is the thing that gives you resilience is deep and meaningful relationships. And you articulated that, you know, beautifully, the notion of a, a kid who feels like someone is there for them and, and can, you know, doesn't have to be in the proximity, feels more resilient, more trusted. The, the thing you didn't touch on that I wonder is part of this is that people no longer trust institutions, which used to serve as a form of security. Any thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, of course, the, the mistrust in journalism makes it very hard to, to know who to trust online. Uh, lack of trust in politicians uh, is lack, lack, lack of trust in, in academics. And lack of trust in physicians, you know, the basically, basically the feeling is, is that we are um, on the road and, and even the court system, right? You would want to believe that if, if something happens, that there is a sense of justice out there. And when the sense of justice is, is eroding, that's very, very tough. And, and, um, one one other interesting thing about misbelief is that in my definition it has two components. One component is the belief in something that is ain't so. Okay, that's the outside. But the second thing is that it's a very deep belief that colors the way we view the world in general. So imagine that I will just take the example of the, the earth is flat. Imagine I think that the earth is flat. It doesn't end there. It says that NASA is lying, and every airline pilot is lying, and every government is deceiving us, and every school system knows the best, and the space program is a hoax, and satellites, and I mean, just think about what it is. And it's all of a sudden not just the belief that the Earth is flat. It's a lens from which you view life, and you say, I don't trust any of the institutions. And that's why it doesn't stop there. Then it goes to other things and other things and other things. And then you hear a little piece here and there and you, and you make the picture. Because if you already don't trust, everything you see uh, creates another level of mistrust. As a society, we're losing a lot because of it. Can you explain the concept of solution aversion? Yes. So, so when we get, when we get to the, the cognitive components, of how we, we change our opinion, there's of course a very simple component, which is we watch the news that we like. You, you decided to watch NBC or Fox News, right? People decide what to watch. And if you watch TikTok, TikTok takes you to one of those paths depending on their algorithm. But then there's a second component, which is not about selecting which information, like imagine this is all the information you want, Confirmation bias is about selecting part of it. Saying, oh, I'm just going to pay attention to this. I'm just paying attention to this. Solution aversion is part of a, another component which says, even when I get exposed to the, all the information, I'm able cognitively to discount the information I don't like and focus on the things that I like. So this is what is called motivated reasoning. And maybe the, the nicest study was done in the context of uh, climate change. And the idea is that, you know, if I try to, to argue with somebody who is climate change denier, let's say, uh, the, the standard strategy is to say, here's a paper, and here's another paper, and here's another paper. 
But what if it's not about the evidence? These are smart, intelligent people. They can read. What if it's about their cognitive system who says, I am going to ignore this. I'm going to discount it. I'm not going to pay attention. And solution aversion basically says that when we don't like the proposed solution, we reject the evidence. So maybe what we need to do is we need to start with solutions that we might agree on and only then try to convince people. So maybe, a, not maybe, but a better approach would be to say to people, no, if climate change was real, let's talk about solutions. What would be reasonable? Let's come up with something. And then come up with something that would not upset them, that they will be willing, willing to do, and then, and then take it from there. So there's, a, there's another, by the way, interesting trick in, in that regard, in the cognitive regard, and, and we call it the illusion of explanatory depth. And the illusion of explanatory depth basically says that people think they understand many things in the world, but we have only a very superficial understanding. And when you push people, you, they basically realize that there's a big gap between what they think they know and what they know. So, so I demonstrated it with a flash toilet. I said to people, do you understand how a flash toilet works? I said, yes. Scale from zero to 100. Stand it a lot. Great. Luckily for you, I have all the pieces of a flush toilet here. Please try and assemble it. Of course, nobody ever managed to assemble it. And then I say, how much do you think you understand flush toilet? And people say, not so much. And again, the idea is that when we try to convince people, we usually go head to head. But let me ask you, in the last five years, how many people have you convinced deeply that they were wrong? Uh, <laughs> Let's agree that not many. I, I worry that sometimes I come on so strong that I just end up cementing their position. That's right. I think that's usually what happens. So usually what happens is we argue with people. And the, the other person is not even finished listening to our sentence. They're already counter-arguing. They're already thinking why we're wrong. So we think we spend an hour expressing our opinion, but the other person spend an hour cementing their own beliefs. So we are not convincing other people. We're not convinced ourselves. The illusion of explanatory depth, basically, don't fight people, come from their side. Now, these coming at people's perspective and exploring that, that process. And by the way, another, another context, of course, is, is the war between Israel and Hamas. So I, I, I thankfully have lots of friends from all over the world, some from Arab countries. And a lot of them contacted me after October 7th wanting to, to talk. And I basically say, look, I don't want to talk about history. I don't want to talk about 1948 and 67 and so on. Not now. I also don't want to talk about who is more morally wrong. It's just not a healthy discussion. I want to talk, what do we do from here forward? What do we think that is the right thing to do from here forward? And they say, fine. And then I say, what, what would you like to see happen? And usually people say, I want an immediate ceasefire and I want Israel to leave Gaza. And I say, okay, I can't grant it, but let's say you got this. Let's say you got those two. So what's next? And usually they stop. They say, what do you mean what's next? This is it, it's over. I said, no, no, no. Not over. If if there's a ceasefire in Israel left Gaza, does Hamas gets to rule Gaza again? 
Usually they say yes. And I say, do we let them arm? And they say yes. And I say, nuclear weapon? They say no. And Air Force? They say no. Uh, uh, Navy? They say no. So I say, okay, so what, what do we let them do? And then if October 7th repeats in three months, what, what do you want the reaction to be then? Because it's, it, you know, there's no question that something like this would, would happen again. And it's not that those approaches move people from right to left or left to right. They just get us to the right state of being less sure in ourselves. And I think one of the dangers in polarization and in discussion is that too many people are 100% sure. And, and what we, like, where is the, the, the nuanced understanding of how complex the world is? And the moment you get to a, a higher nuanced understanding of, look, this is a really complex situation. There's lots of wrong ways to go forward. It's very unclear. I think it's a, it's a better reflection of the situation. And it's also much more likely that we as a public, we, we are not decision makers in the, in the politics, but it's a, make it much more likely that we as a public would, uh, whatever our uh, desires to pressure uh, the political system, they would be aimed at the right, at the right direction. Well, you talk about this. You talk about a means of combating misbelief. It requires a strategy rooted in empathy. And we talked about asking questions. Isn't it oftentimes also really important to acknowledge points on the other side and acknowledge the other viewpoint? Yes. Acknowledge the other viewpoint in the suffering. Like, you know, the, 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 the discussion is like on, on both sides. There were some really wonderful academic papers showing that, that both sides just want somebody to say, you were wrong. This was terrible. This shouldn't have been like this. You were wrong. Now let's talk about what do we do uh, moving forward, but hearing our pain, uh, having some sympathy, uh, because, because the other way we, we just think we're fighting, right? Couldn't you hear me? Here's what I just said that, you know, why, why can't you acknowledge anything? But people, people treat discussions as if it's a battlefield. It's, it's not a battlefield. At the end of the day, uh, we should come up with a, with a, new joint understanding of what we are. And people are just not, not collaborative in this process. We'll be right back. Support for this episode of PropG comes from listening. Do you ever get computerized? It's not a medical term. I actually just made it up, but I bet you know exactly what it means. Staring at a screen all day long isn't just tough on your eyes. It can also wreak havoc on your back and neck, leading to lots of issues down the road. If you prefer to listen rather than read, just like you're listening to this pod, you might want to check out Listening. Listening is an app that can turn any kind of text, including PDFs, research papers, blogs, articles, or even email newsletters into high-quality, engaging audio. The Listening app uses the latest AI voices, complete with emotion and intonation, to create a realistic and engaging listening experience. We tried it out at PropG Media, and simply put, we were blown away. It gets even sort of the nuance and the idiosyncrasies of a voice down, and it feels, quite frankly, it just feels human-like. The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and now you can give it a shot for yourself, risk-free. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of ProfG get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash ProfG or use code ProfG at checkout. Listening. 
your life just got a lot easier. You speak a lot about motivation. Yeah, you've you've written and spoken a lot about it. What what gets us to care about things and act on them? So, so lots of things. I'll I'll tell you. This is slightly out of uh, the context of this discussion, but in the last seven years, I have been tracking how companies treat their employees, how the employees feel about the company, and what it means for the company's performance in the stock market. So, for example, I'll, I'll ask you a few things. Do you think uh, that companies that pay their employees better have a higher return to their stocks? I'd like to think yes. <laughs> so the empirical answer is no, not much. Uh, and what about health benefits? Do companies that give better health benefits have higher return to their stock? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I'm cheating here. I know the answer is no, because <laughs> Mc, McDonald's has gone up 12x and doesn't have health care. I mean, yeah, yeah, the answer is no. Yeah, so, so the reality is that there are these fork in the road between extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. And extrinsic motivation is salary and bonuses and chairs and tables and uh, health benefits and retirement benefits, and all of those things that are called extrinsic motivation don't end up mattering so much. Uh, this is research that we had data from 2006 ongoing, so you know, for, this, for this period and hundreds of companies. The things that do matter end up being about intrinsic motivation. And one of the things that is the most important is do you feel appreciated? Now, now think about what does it mean to feel appreciated. By the way, I think I think that when I heard about this, when when I heard, when when we uh, saw the results for this, I thought about all the all the waste in the world in which we just don't get people to feel sufficiently appreciated. Think about all the people who work with us. Sometimes, sometimes it feels to me that people behave as if we're born with a limited amount of compliments. And if we gave all of our compliments away, we would die, but it's not true. We can give, we, there's an endless amount of appreciation, endless amount of thanks, and, uh, and, and it really matters. People do lots of things, and they want it to know that somebody is watching. They want to know that somebody is watching, and it's, and it's worthwhile. Another thing is psychological safety. Psychological safety is basically people's ability to express their opinions, and it's a little bit like resilience. And, and they feel that nobody would attack them, nobody would cancel them, nobody would attack them, that it's a, it's a safe environment to express thoughts and, and feelings. And alignment with the company is important, right? We work somewhere, but, but we need to know that, that we're aligned with the company, that we, that we care about what it is that they are doing, that we feel connected. Bureaucracy, by the way, is one of the things that kills motivation. Almost nothing kills motivation as much as bureaucracy. Because when we, when we add bureaucracy, we basically say to people, uh, we don't trust you, we don't care about your time, and uh, we don't want you to do anything different. You see an op 
opportunity for improvement, don't do it. Just do, uh, just do what's easy uh, without uh, tackling the bureaucracy. Of course, all of those are very, very negative in terms of motivation. So, so we have extrinsic motivation, intrinsic, what's really important is intrinsic. And then within intrinsic, there are these two subcomponents. One is goodwill. Think about your current amount of effort in quality 100. Not you, but you know somebody. Uh, think about your, your current level of effort at your job and quality 100. Now ask yourself how much lower you could get and still not lose your job. For many people, it's quite a lot. And then think about how much up you can go if you were truly excited about what you do. That range between the minimum you had to do not to lose your job and the max you could do if you could be very excited, that's I call goodwill. Because that's the part where the employee controls. I decide if to sit here and drink coffee or to try uh, very hard. So that's one, the first component. Then the second component, I call utility embracing. And think about the following story. Imagine a janitor in hospital. The janitor has a job description. Soap, water, toilet paper, whatever. One day our janitor walks in the hallway and they hear a patient crying. Should they go and check on them? They say yes. One day the janitor walks and they see a family getting lost in the corridors. Should he redirect them? Yes. In fact, we understand that there's lots of things that are not in the janitor's job description that we want the janitor to do. We want the janitor to take the utility of the hospital. Saying, this is good for the hospital. It's not good for me right now because it takes time for me and I'll have to go back to my duties later, but it's good for the hospital. And when you think about it, there are lots of cases in which we want people not to do their job description. We want people to look around and say, where else can I be helpful? What can I do to be helpful for the organization that is not in my job description? So those two components, utility embracing, opening our eyes and looking around and goodwill make a huge difference. And, and the thing about it, it's, it's good for everybody. People who go to a workplace where they love going to are happier and more productive. Right? Everybody wins. But nevertheless, lots of organizations are not doing it the right way. So on a larger scale, what global societal issues, and I imagine there's a lot to pick from right now, have occurred as a result of our own irrational behavior? What are self-inflicted wounds here? Well, right now, I think one of the big ones is, is social media, and it, it's multiple wounds. The, the class action lawsuit, lawsuits in the U.S. against tobacco are about 200 billion, I think, something like that. What would the number be if there were class action lawsuits against social media? It'll be hard to quantify, but, but we talked about loneliness and depression and social polarization and fake news and people are not getting vaccinated. And now you, you can just name the, name the thing. Imagine we would, we would quantify that. That would be much more, I think. Um, and it's self-inflicted in, in the sense that, um, you know, when, when, I, when I started writing this book, I, in the proposal I wrote, it will be a chapter on solutions. Um, I don't have a chapter on solution. I have these little sections in the middle called hopefully helpful. Because I think that 
the real solutions have to be much broader and bigger. We have to control social media. We have to create new standards for truth. I think the freedom of speech is a wonderful idea, but when it can be weaponized in a way that it is now, we have to reconsider it. It's one of the biggest problem, I think, of modern society is, is mis misinformation and polarization. Like 10 years ago, if you asked me what are the big problems facing humanity, this wouldn't be one of them. Now, I think that for, in order to go forward in anything, we need to unite. If, if whatever decision we make, the other half is going to say, I'm not accepting it, or I think this, like, we're not going to move forward in any meaningful way. So I think that would be number one for me now, is, is the way that our information systems are working. And we need, we need to, we need to do something really big to fix them. Dan Ariely is a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University and a founding member of the Center for Advanced Hindsight. He's also the best-selling author of a number of books, including Irrationally Yours, Predictably Irrational, and The Upside of Irrationality. His latest book, Misbelief, What Makes Rational People Believe Irrational Things, is out now. He joins us from the great University of Duke. Uh, professor, it's always good to speak to you. And uh, I came late to writing books. It's I wish I'd started earlier. It's been something wonderful for me. And your book, uh, predictably, I think it was predictably irrational, was motivation for me to write the book because your agent reached out to me and said, you remind me of Professor Ariely and you should write a book. So thanks for that. Oh, and, and Jim Levine is a... He's an amazing, amazing, amazing guy. What a mensch. Yeah, exactly. Thanks again. Best of luck to you. Algebra of Happiness, something that struck me. I'm not, I don't know much about Michelle Obama. I've always thought she was a really impressive first lady and an impressive person. And like most people, I'm very fond or have very, I don't know, positive memories of the Obama administration. Something she said recently, though, really struck me, and that is, you're not your kid's friend, you're their parent. And I have found as my bullies have gotten older, I kept kind of hoping and pushing me and them to be friends, that we would hang out and do stuff together and talk together. I remember <laughs> I said to my kid, it's time to have, you know, the sex talk. And I have never seen a look of horror like I saw on his face. And he literally screamed out reflexively, no. And I think I was sort of upset because I thought, well, we should be able to have these conversations. And the reality is I'm not his friend. And that might be a conversation that a dad and a son have. It probably should be. But it's probably not necessarily a conversation a dad and a son need to have. Uh, but I was upset because I thought, I thought maybe he'd think of me as a friend who could give him good advice. Uh, I get my kid, my youngest, now out of bed every day. I have my boys. And it's a freaking nightmare. My kid is like me. He's nocturnal. We start this three-hour process called putting him to bed at about 9.30 p.m. And by 1 a.m., he's finally in bed. I, I want to get milk. I need to brush my teeth. Oh, I need to check my phone. I mean, it's just like the like delay and stall tactics that would make any professional athlete, um, I don't know, whimper or um, cower in impressiveness. Anyways, he's very good at stalling around then. 
And then I wake up, you know, my alarm goes off at 7.15. I feed the dogs. I come down and I get him. And the first thing I do, I go in, I wake up the shades and I say, Nolan, and I turn off the sound machine. And he's like, yeah, a little bit longer. And then I go down. And eventually it just digresses to, at some point, me screaming at him and sometimes even throwing the covers off of him and like not physically dragging out of him out of bed, but basically dragging him out of bed. And it's upsetting for me. I don't like it. And the reality is you're not your kid's friend. You're their dad. You're their mother. And that's what you're here for. You're here to make sure they know their love, but you're here to logistically get shit done, put guardrails around them, give them values, make sure they have confidence and self-esteem. And I think a certain amount of discipline and guardrails and forcing them to have a certain set of objectives uh, such that they know how to get things done. They know what's required to get things done. They know things involve a trade-off and still a certain level of discipline, know that there is a hierarchy and authority in every situation, including a household. I think that's really important. And sometimes it hurts, and a lot of times it's not as fun. Sometimes I'd rather just rather have a couple of friends to hang out with. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm not their friend. I'm their dad. This episode was produced by Caroline Chagrin. Jennifer Sanchez is our associate producer, and Drew Burrows is our technical director. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you on Saturday for No Mercy, No Malice, as read by George Hahn, and on Monday with our weekly market show.